Take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes 6. Ecclesiastes 6, uh, title of the sermon, A Common Evil Which Demands a Better Way. Next week we're going to begin talking about this better way. Today Solomon is considering a common evil, what he'll call a great disease. We embark this morning upon the third general division of the book of Ecclesiastes as I've divided them in my outline of the book. I've given you that outline, it's on the back table. Uh, if you would like one, I did get more of them printed so that there are more of them out there. I give an outline of every book at the beginning so that, uh, Lord willing, one of these days, uh, we will have an outline of every book of the Bible as uh, created in, in the manner or in, the, in, the, uh, in agreement with, with my, my preaching and uh, the way I've divided the book so that you can have the outline and then you can have the sermons. And Lord willing as well... Um, that's a help to you as you're studying the books out on your own, helping just gain, gain a, a broader perspective of what we uh, are learning about. Sometimes it's easy to lose the forest for the trees. We dig down, we get deep, and we forget the broader context of what's going on in the book. We forget where the arguments are going, especially in the epistles. Uh, you know, most people, when you read a letter, you don't read it a couple sentences a day over the course of, of uh, a year. You, you read a letter all together, and it's important that we understand, while we need to dig down and, and, and get to the depths of what God is teaching, it's important to understand that they're letters uh, meant to be understood as a whole. And so uh, each of these books is, is very similar in many ways, some of them more so than others. So we entered the, the third division of this outline, and recall the divisions as we broke them up. In chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 6, uh, Solomon presents this initial conclusion that enjoyment in life is a gift from God alone, given to those of faith, but still only temporal, in scope and in worth. Life is still temporary. Then, in that second section, which we finished last week, chapters 3 through 5, excuse me, enjoyment in life is a gift from God alone, given to those of faith, not taken of men by force or right. You can't take, you can't have enjoyment in life, lasting satisfaction your way. It must be God's way. We must have God's design. We step into this third section today. Enjoyment in life is a gift from God alone, given to those of faith, and remaining in those who seek the better way. In other words, there is a template through which we find this better way. We've talked about it. We've talked about obedience. We've talked about recognizing God's design. Now we're going to dig down to the heart of some of these matters and understand the the meat of, of finding this better way to live. And then we'll have our fourth section where we realize that if we reject this better way, God will bring every work into judgment. And so we need to fear God and keep His commandments. This week we consider a common evil that undergirds the need for this better way. It is often the reality of failure or inadequacy that convinces us of the need to search for a better way, isn't it? We've perhaps all been there. I could point out stories of working in my life or, or, or whatever it might be. My dad and I working on something together in the garage or, or in the house and we start doing a project and, and it's really hard. 
I remember Troy and I, when we were working on the floor in our house, we'd never, neither one of us had ever put together this type of floor before. It was uh, one of those uh, uh, laminates that you, you click together and we started doing it and it was resisting us. And as it was resisting us, uh, we, we kind of looked at each other at one point and said, you know, there's got to be a better way. There's no way that people were dumb enough to, to, to make it this way. And then, you know, th- this is the way you put it together. And then we realized that we had, we had started from the wrong end. We were putting it in uh, backwards and whatnot. And we said, aha, yes, it is a better way. And you start doing it the better way. And it, it makes sense. It starts to work. And if you've ever been in one of those situations where uh, you're just really struggling with something or it's not going well or it's really hard or you've been exerting a lot of energy and you, 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 and maybe that is the norm. Maybe it's the way it's supposed to be. This is how inventions happen, right? Somebody is doing something and they're tired and they say, you know what? There's just got to be a better way to do this. And then they invent some better way because it's just too hard or it's too complicated or whatever it might be. Every week I sit across from men and women in the jail and they talk about their life choices and their suffering and everything from their voice to their eyes to their body language screams, there must be a better way to live. There must be a better way. Men and women who struggle from day to day with the tediums of life, with their sorrows, with their relationships, their expenses, their disappointments, their drama, all of those things really that we considered in chapters 3 and 4, right? The oppression and the selfishness and all of those different things. And these dear men and women, unbelievers and believers alike, crying out at least from their hearts that there must be a better way. I went to a conference this week. A conference where we were learning about how to minister to uh, veterans who come back, get out of the military and are struggling uh, with what, what the world has classified today as PTSD. It's been called several things throughout the years, uh, depending on the war and depending on the time. But they're struggling to reintegrate into society after the horrors that they've seen. And we talked about various solutions that, that the world is coming up with uh, in order to help these veterans cope. And then the conclusion that we inevitably come to in this conference is there must be a better way, right? And there is. Until the day that we sit at the feet of Jesus, we struggle to find this better way. Like Mary at the end of Luke 10, when we listen and we learn... We find that what we think we want is not really what we want. The direction that we think we need to go in our hearts is not always the direction that we ought to go. And like the kind and loving God that He is, long-suffering and patient, He speaks to us through His Word. He asks us to take His hand, to follow His lead, and to find a better way. And so let us begin before we wallow in the doldrums of the common evil, which will convince us of the better way, to remember what this better way is. Before we dig down into kind of the depressing part of the sermon where we consider the evil, what is this better way? I'm going to give you a few verses. Psalm chapter 2 verse 12 says this, Kiss the son lest he be angry, and he perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Proverbs 16, verse 20. He that handleth a matter wisely shall find good, and whoso trusteth in the Lord, happy is he. Jeremiah 17, 7. Blessed is the man that trusteth the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. 
Proverbs 16, verse 20. He that handleth... How are you going to do that one? I did. There. So good you got it twice. He that handleth the matter wisely shall find good. And whoso trusteth the Lord, happy is he. Remembering as we dig into this common evil that there is a better way. And that better way comes as we submit ourselves to God's way. Trust His way. Let's dig into the text today. We're getting through the entire chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes today. The Bible says this in verses 1 and 2. Solomon writing, he says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. Yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity. And it is, notice this, an evil disease. Solomon reinitiates our thoughts upon an evil disease. He calls this evil an evil which exists under the sun. Now, never miss this. Remember, he commonly uses this phrase under the sun to speak of those things that we consider outside of the providence of God. It's not that it is outside the providence of God. Providence of God. It is not outside of his control, but we're looking from an earthly perspective, from a man's perspective, as if when I look at this, I'm not considering God's part in this. I'm just considering man's part in this. The way man lives his life, if we can say, apart from God or outside of the consideration of the divine. And he calls this evil one that is common among men, one which by testimony of the Bible we ought to see and be able to see regularly around us. After all, if it is something that is common among men, then you and I ought to be able to look around us today, even though it's some 2,050 or or 2,500, 2,500 years or so after Solomon wrote this, even more so actually, probably closer to 3,000 years after he wrote this, we ought to still be able to look around today and find it, right? Because it is common among men. And what is this great and common evil. Well, Solomon describes it as a man unto whom has been given riches, wealth, and honor. Uh, A man who lacks in no necessity, either small or great. He has everything that he wants, or he can have everything he wants. Now, uh, take note that we're still talking about riches today. Now, we've talked about wealth and riches a great deal in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll, we'll find it more. But we are going to dig down, uh, again, to a deeper root cause this morning. So, so bear with me as we continue through the ideas of wealth. I know we've talked about this. I know we don't necessarily uh, need to cover the same ground many times, although, really, as a philosophy of, of um, general study... If the Bible repeats something often, we should probably be repeating it often as well, right? If the Bible doesn't repeat it often, then it might 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 be good for us not to necessarily uh, major on it as much as say something that the Bible repeats over and over and over and over and over again. It means God wants us to, to perk our ears and pay attention, right? So this man has, he lacks no necessity, whether small or great. But the great evil, what Solomon calls the evil disease, is when God has given this man these resources, but has not given him the power to enjoy them. When another man eats of the good of his labor. Now, the question question becomes, what does this mean? We spoke in chapter 4 about the evil and the unbiblical ideology, which is becoming very popular today, communitarianism, uh, communism, socialism, all of these ideas. Uh, we, we, we spoke of that, this great evil, an ideology whereby authorities compel men to, uh, who earn to support those who do not. 
And we're careful to mention that this ideology is not evil because it wants everyone to be cared for, because that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to want everybody to be cared for, is it? To want everybody to have general necessities. That's not why this ideology is bad. This ideology is bad, it's evil, because it does not, by design, take into account the sinful nature of man and his propensity to be motivated by personal advantage. It ignores the fact that man is sinful. As a matter of fact, socialism, communism, these ideologies assume man is inherently good. That's the whole point. They assume that if we could just get rid of poverty... If we could just get everyone educated, then crime and evil would go away. Right? We've seen it this past few weeks with the terrorist attacks. People keep saying the reason why these these people are terrorizing others, are killing others, is because they feel marginalized. It's because we're hurting their feelings, and they're responding to us hurting their feelings by killing us. And so we had a president for eight years who incessantly apologized to them and told them just how evil we are and how good they are. And it didn't work. And it will never work. And it can't work. Because it's not about them feeling marginalized. It's about evil hearts. Poverty is not what causes evil. Lack of education is not what causes evil. And these ideologies believe that man is naturally good, so then evil must come from external stimulus. If we believe the Bible, then we understand that man is not naturally good. Man is naturally evil. He is predisposed to evil. And we must teach the good. God brings righteousness. And so these philosophies cannot work, will not work, will always lead to failure. Because they miss the point that man is naturally evil. In Christ, we are motivated to, by a love for God to help others. We should naturally desire to bless and love others. We, above all people, should be the most generous because we are servants of the living God. And God calls us to have an open hand. But this is not an innate human desire. And to force this ideology will never bring about the utopia which man seeks. And so socialism and communism demand what earners make by force to be given to those who don't. And it's a recipe for disaster. Go back to Ecclesiastes 4 if you want a little bit more of why it cannot work. But what it is, when it boils down to it, it's theft. It is the government taking, stealing from those who have to give to those who have not. And as we consider the evil which Solomon references today, however, we understand that the language that Solomon uh, is giving here, when we have this idea that a man has things, but he's not given the power to eat of them, but rather a stranger eats thereof, we would be predisposed to think back toward that evil that we would 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 uh, see worked out in the ideology today of socialism or communism. But that's not really where Solomon's going here. He's not speaking concerning this oppressive ideology of taking away man's goods uh, and even the evils of theft and robbery and taking away those goods. Notice how carefully this is written here. He says in verses 1 and 2 that this is a man whom God hath 
given these things. It's a man whom God has given these riches. Solomon is not referencing a man who has gained his fortune through evil or through deceit or through oppression. He's not referencing a man who has taken from others. He is referencing a man who has aligned himself with not necessarily God's will, but at least God's design, right? We've talked about this. We've talked about the fact that there are things that are God's will and God's people identify God's will. But then there are also things that are God's design. And even unbelievers, when they align themselves with God's design, find good. We call it common grace, right? Even the unbeliever, when he plants in the spring and he harvests in the fall, will receive a crop because God's common grace of rain and of sun and of seasons uh, is upon us. Even the unbeliever, as he's shaking his fist at God, if he gives to the poor, he will find fulfillment in that because it's more blessed to give than to receive. And God gives the common grace of fulfillment in giving. And so this is a man who has identified some elements of common grace of of God's design and has aligned with them. Again, we're not assuming he's a godly man, but he is a man who has identified God's design, whether he calls it that or not. In other words, work ethic, integrity, right? These things are God's design. You work hard, Proverbs tells us, you live off of of the, the blessings that you work for. You have integrity, you tell the truth. People appreciate that. It's, it's, it's a helpful thing. So if a man, no matter how evil he is, no matter how much he hates God, if he identifies work ethic, if he identifies truth, if he identifies these elements of common grace in God's design and he lives within them, he will find good. Now, whether he will ever admit it or not, what we recognize is that God has given him those riches through the wisdom of, of his design. So Solomon speaks of this man who has earned money and gained honor as a common grace of life, likely compelled, as I mentioned, by work ethic, industry, determination to succeed. Second, we find that this is a man unto whom God has not given the power to enjoy his labor. Notice that just as it was God who gave the, these things to him, God has withheld the right of enjoyment. So... Other people end up enjoying his prosperity, not just other family and friends, but strangers end up enjoying his prosperity. So this is the man whose goal is not to live. What we're looking at here is a man whose goal is not to live. This is a man whose goal is to accumulate. The man who knows how to earn according to the general design of our creator, but has no idea what wealth and riches and honor are for. Have you ever met someone who has a really, uh, he has something really amazing, but he has no idea how to use it, no idea of its potential. As a tech guy, this is one of those things that, that kind of uh, makes me sad. <laughs> when I see a person and they buy the, the newest smartphone all the time, right? And you sit there and you say, do you realize how much power you have in your hands? All the things that it can do. And... You know, all, all they want to do is call and text. It's like, well, that's fine. But you bought so much and you could have gotten a $30 phone from Walmart that does the exact same thing, right? Uh, you, you have somebody and they get a, you know, for me, I, I look and they get a brand new computer and it's got this beautiful big monitor and, and it's got all the bells and whistles. And what do they want to do? They want to surf the internet. Well, you, you could 
go get a $150 computer from Walmart and just as sufficiently surf the internet as that $2,000 computer that you bought. And, and we see people, and it can be frustrating, whether it's a person that buys the top of the line tools, right? And they really, you know, they, they, they buy the top of the line drill and driver guys and all they want to do is, you know, hang some pictures in the, in the drywall and they've got this in, incredible tool and, and they don't know what it's used for. The person who uh, has the, the, the super expensive laptop just to browse the internet. The woman who bought the industrial strength mixer and only uses it once a year to make some cookie dough. The person who spends heaps of money on a top of the line camera only to perpetually use it in auto. That's another one that gets me. You know, these DSLRs and, and they're, they're so powerful and then they just flip it to auto and it's just a point and shoot for them. Never do anything with it. It's like, well, why didn't you just buy the point and shoot then? It would have saved you a lot of money and you're wasting, you're wasting what you have. You're wasting the potential. The person who buys, you know, all of these things and they're wasting the potential. So you look at these people in any given situation and you think, if only you understood what that tool was for, what it could do, how capable it is and learned how to use it, Wow, you'd be blown away. What about talents? You have to study and strive to eke out good grades. You have to work so hard just to, to meet your, your uh, standards. And then you look at that person who has absolutely no work ethic, doesn't even try and they get better grades. They just coast right through. And you say, if only you understood the advantage that you have with that kind of a mind. If only you knew what you could do. If only you could, I could transplant your mind into my work ethic. Imagine what could, what could be done. You see a kid and he's got all the abilities, all the talents, all of the, the capacity, and he just sits in front of the television all day and does nothing with it. And you say, if only you knew what you could do with the abilities that you have. We see those things. And this is the kind of man that Solomon is talking about here. He's a man who has figured out how to make money. He's figured out God's common grace enough to reap the blessings of riches and honor so that he can have anything he wants. He is likewise a man who has no idea, however, what they're for, what riches and honor is for. He's never learned how to Find lasting satisfaction through them. Not in them. That's the problem. But through them. So he has the power to gain, but not the power to truly enjoy. He's driving a Ferrari in second gear. He's stuck gaining and gaining only to have others enjoy his labor when his course is finished. Solomon calls this vanity. Lacking that which is necessary to produce lasting satisfaction. And he uses, as I've mentioned several times, a new descriptor in the book. This is the first time it comes up to describe it. He says it's not just vanity. He normally says vanity and vexation of spirit. But did you notice what he said here? He said at the end of verse 2, this is vanity and it is an evil disease. An evil disease. The word used in the Old Testament to speak of physical illnesses. But in this case, it isn't a physical disease, is it? It's an emotional, spiritual disease that eats away at at his success and the successful in this world. They've risen to the top of their game. They have found all measure of success. They've pursued ambitions to their successful ends and they found in it that it doesn't satisfy. And some of them are tormented by this. 
But this evil disease does not only touch the very wealthy and successful. Have you ever really wanted something? And we've used this illustration in Ecclesiastes before. Maybe it's a child and you've wanted something around Christmas time or a birthday. Or, or as an adult, you've really gotten an itch to get that new toy or thing or utility or whatever it might be. And you've craved it and you've longed for it. And maybe you've saved for it. Children, maybe you've begged for it or whatever it might be. And then you finally get it. And that mountaintop experience isn't quite as high as you assumed it might be. You get it, and you really, yes, I got it, it's mine, I have it now. And then you just kind of realize, well, that's it. You like it, it's great, but then dissatisfaction ends up creeping back in, right? There isn't that kind of lingering joy and excitement that you'd hoped for. You finally get that dog, but in about a week you realize it's a lot of work, right? You finally get that toy that you said, if if you'll get this for me, I'll never ask for anything again. And you find yourself in a couple of weeks bored and ready for something new. Eventually, it all ends up in a garage sale sold for a portion of its value or in a drawer collecting dust, right? And that's the disease we're talking about today. It doesn't just afflict, afflict the wealthy. And this is where we'll boil down to something deeper. When a man, a believer, or an unbeliever alike has identified God's design enough to have the power to get, you've worked hard, you have work ethic, you have integrity, you've worked hard so that you can have, but you haven't identified God's design enough to have the power to truly enjoy, to be satisfied. Solomon continues to describe this man in verses 3 and 4. If a man beget an hundred children... And live many years so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial. I say that an untimely birth is better than he. For he cometh in with vanity and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. Notice how Solomon continues to describe this scenario, this man. And of course, this is not the only scenario. He's just describing a scenario. So this man, he has the power to earn, but he doesn't have the power to enjoy. This, this man is not barren, nor is he unfruitful. This is not the man who has neglected everything else in life for money and, and implicitly. Uh, he begets a hundred children. Now remember, we're talking hyperbole. This is poetic, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean he has one hundred children, though in, in that day it's possible. Uh, it's a hypothetical. He just means that the man has many children. Uh, he lives a long life. Now remember, the Bible says that children are inherited from the Lord, right? There's a natural blessing in children as well. So he's identifying the natural blessings. The natural blessing of work that brings wealth. The natural blessing of children. That, and, and he's identifying these things. But notice what it says about him. If he has all of these children and he has all of these money, but he doesn't get a burial, his soul is not filled with good through his children, he's identified how to get it, but he hasn't identified how to enjoy it. He lives a long time. He has a lot of kids. He has a lot of money. All those things that we say, this is a great life, right? Long life. Lots of children. Lots of money. This is, I mean, does it get much better? But at the end of the days, he has no burial. They didn't love him. He had children, but he'd never really found the blessing of family. He had many years, but he never really had the blessing of a life well lived. 
He had money, but he never really had the blessing of contentment. Solomon says, untimely birth is better than he. So we identify the blessings of God's children, right? We mentioned them already. Psalm 127.3 Children are inherited from the Lord and the fruit of the womb is His reward. Proverbs 3, 1 and 2 My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments for length of day and long life and peace shall they add to thee. So children are a blessing from the Lord. Long life is a blessing from the Lord. But he's a man who is heaping unto himself the resources that the Bible says are a blessing, but he doesn't know what to do with those resources. Okay, I've got money. Okay, I've got kids. Okay, I've got long life. Now what do I do? I got all the resources, now what do I do with them? And he never figured it out. Children aren't a blessing just because they exist, are they? They're a blessing, the Bible tells us, when they grow up to be godly. When you know what to do with children. Long life isn't a blessing just because you have it. It's a blessing when that life is well lived, when you know what to do with that life. This man is described as having all of these things, but at the end of his days, they don't even have a funeral for them. He didn't know what to do with his children, so they didn't grow to love and honor him. He didn't know what to do with that long life, so people aren't interested in celebrating that life. Just like those who don't know what to do with all that money, nothing was ever done with it, so too with the children, so too with the life. And Solomon states it would have been better for that man to have miscarried in the womb, to have died in childbirth, than to have lived that kind of life. what it means to have an untimely birth. The child comes too early or under abnormal circumstances and so dies. Solomon's saying it's better that that man would have had life cut short than to live a wasted life. Now gain perspective with me here. We say how awful that would be to ever look at anybody and say it's better that you'd never been born, right? But take note that that's not really what Solomon's saying here. Solomon lived these years himself, didn't he? He lived years of waste and worthlessness. He's writing this book from experience. He had the money and the potential and the honor and the kids and the life, right? He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He probably had a good number of kids. He had all that stuff. And that's what he's looking back on his life and he's saying, it's not enough just to have it. It's not enough just to have 40 years of peace in your kingdom. It's not enough just to have all of these kids. It's not enough just to have all of this wealth. That's not enough. There's no meaning in it. He's speaking of his own experience here. In other words, it is the man himself who has wasted his existence, who then eventually comes to the place where he says of himself, it's better that I had never been born. Solomon's not saying, look, it's better you or you or you had never been born. We have, no, we have no capacity to judge the fulfillment in another man's life. Solomon is writing this and saying, it's better that I had never been born than to live out the kind of days that I lived out. Better that I had had an untimely birth. And Solomon says, this is an evil disease. Where a person comes to the point where they have been so unfulfilled in their life where they are, are so lacking for the understanding of how to enjoy life that they don't want to live because they find no satisfaction in life. Getting up in the morning is useless, worthless. One of the things I often find in jail, I get in 
to the jail at 9 o'clock in the morning. And almost invariably, when I request that first person, I wake them up. Because in the jail, the philosophy is the more you can sleep, the faster time goes. The more I can sleep, the less time I'm awake. But you know, it's not just people in physical incarceration that feel that way. There's plenty of people who have it all. Who have found the capacity to gain, but not the capacity to enjoy. Who just don't want to be awake. Because there's nothing for them there. Solomon says it's an evil disease. A byproduct of having resources, whether material, emotional, or spiritual, but not knowing what to do with them or how to use them properly. But take note that we're not necessarily talking about what we would term today mental illness. Now, much of what is mental illness today, I believe, is spiritual disease. Not necessarily a mental issue as much as a spiritual and emotional issue. Don't miss my meaning. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as mental illness. What I'm saying is that the only reason for such... I'm not saying that the only reason for dejection, what we'd often call severe depression, is, is not medical. I probably didn't express that well. There are medical reasons that people suffer these things. Mental and physical reasons. We've seen a lot of things with thyroid conditions today and whatnot that can cause people to be in a state of severe sorrow and depression and suicidal tendencies and such. So we're not saying it's not ever that. But when Solomon calls this an evil disease, this life of severe depression and of uselessness and of wanting to, to, to die or wishing you'd never been born... In this case, what he is identifying is that it's a spiritual problem. And so take note of that. That as we look at a society where mental illness is going through the roof and people are saying the only reason why is because we've never really identified it before. It's a a new field of science. May, May I suggest that that's probably not the only reason why? May I suggest that one of the reasons why what we're calling mental illness is going through the roof is because people know how to get, but they don't know how to live. Because they don't know how to identify God, because they've rejected Him. And if I'm just a clump of cells, and I'm living in this stimulus response, kill or be killed, survival of the fittest life, then there is no meaning. If I create my own meaning, then ultimately there's so little to live for. That people fall into this state of sorrow and of depression and of pointlessness and meaninglessness and worthlessness. And while there is certainly the reality of mental disease, take note, there is such thing as a spiritual disease as well. An evil spiritual disease whereby we spend our lives, we waste our lives because we aren't living them by God's design. And the very thing which our deceitful heart tells us is what we want, the very thing that our deceitful heart tells us is the cure, is actually the carrier for the disease. Go stand in line for six hours, eight hours, twelve hours to get the next iPhone, and you'll be cured of your, your desire. Well, it's actually the carrier, isn't it? It's actually feeding the desire. 
Go make a whole heap more money, and once you have enough money, then you'll be cured of this longing. And you make the money, and you find out, if you're wise, that the money was actually the carrier of the disease, not the cure. Until one day we despair. Because you've tried everything. And nothing's working. And so we begin to think that it's better just to have had an untimely birth where we come in with vanity and we depart quickly in darkness and our name is nothing more than a memory. And we don't have to live through those days of sorrow. Solomon continues to describe this stillborn baby saying, Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, verses 5 and 6, nor known anything. This hath more rest than the other. Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, Yet hath he seen no good. Do not all go to one place. Do you see his reasoning here? The baby who sees the sun, who never who never sees the sun, who never knew anything, never had to be troubled by life. He has more rest than the person who lived 2,000 years. Because he's not going to find it just in time. Solomon says, even if a man lived a 1,000 years twice over but simply continued along this same path, there would be no difference. The, the cure doesn't come in time. When a person dies at 80 years old, having not been fulfilled, we can't just say, well, if he'd only had another 20 years, then he'd be fulfilled. Right? We can't say that. Well, he lived to be 120 years old. Well, if he only had another 120. He lived to be 1,000 years old. If he only had another 1,000, then he could find happiness finally. It's just that he didn't have enough time. No, Solomon says it doesn't matter how much time you have. If you stay on the same road, if you stay on the same path, you're never going to find the new result. Wasn't that Albert Einstein's great quote? Insanity is expecting different results to the same process. Something to that effect, I'm paraphrasing. Whether he dies at birth or lives to be 2,000, Solomon says, the quality of one's life, the worth of one's existence changes little if this evil spiritual disease is not taken care of. And after all, you both go to the same place, right? You both return to dust. So at this point in Solomon's life, when he was thinking this, not necessarily when he was writing it, because he'd come out of it by that time, but when he was thinking this, he was at the point of saying, well, if the baby goes uh, returns to dust and I'm going to return to dust then why not return to dust before you have to deal with all the troubles of life before I have to deal with the pain of unfulfillment and the sorrow that life brings you know there, there are millions of people that live this way every day millions of people suicide rates are through the roof in this country people are literally saying it had been better if I had had an untimely birth. And then they're taking their lives. What's going on? Is it really just an outbreak of mental illness that all of our wires are crossed? Now certainly our genetic pool is, is watering down. We know that over time. We're copies of copies of copies of copies. So it's, it's bound to happen. But what if there's something else going on? What if there is a better way that can lead to happiness and fulfillment, but people just aren't finding it? What if it's not in materialism? Poverty is at an all-time historic low in the world. Poverty has been cut in half in the past 50 years. Worldwide poverty. 
So is it really a money issue? Is it really an education issue? Is it really a crime issue? Or is this something else? Is there a be- there must be a better way? Every disease manifests itself in symptoms, doesn't it? We talked about this a little bit with the gospel this morning. When we were talking about the gospel, a fever, achy bones, coughing, sneezing, runny nose, headache. They're all symptoms that reveal deeper problems. Pain. It's not enough simply to cover the symptoms. We need to cure the problem. So what are the symptoms of the great spiritual disease that Solomon is speaking of here? Verse 7. All the labor of a man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not filled. One of the symptoms of this spiritual disease is a man who craves but can never be satisfied. He wants, no matter how much he has, he longs for more. When a man conquers this mountain, he wants the next highest mountain. When a man achieves a major milestone, he sees it as a stepping stone to the next. In many ways, this indomitable human spirit is one of the things that makes mankind so special and so wonderful, right? The constant pursuit of more. We seek progress. We want to grow. We want to test the limits of our own understanding. We want to test the limits of our capacity, of our achievement, Now, the disease is not that we are capable. The disease is not that we strive to be better. The disease is when we make this appetite the God of our life. So that our life is defined by more and better and next. If I may boil it down to you, for you, and this is where we're going with this, I'm gonna give, gonna give away the ending here. The disease is self. The, the great disease is self. When you experience dissatisfaction with some element of life and something inside of you seeks to convince you that something in this world could be the source of satisfaction, but you just don't have it yet. That the grass is greener, that if only you had what your neighbor has, that if only you had what they have, or, 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 or if only you were like them, if only you had their looks, if only you had their talents, if only you had their money. If only you had their intelligence, then you'd be happy. But what's keeping you back is something in this world. From happiness, you know that you have this evil disease. And it's not a mental disease, folks. It's a spiritual disease. It's a spiritual disease. And it's the essence of the human condition. It's the whole reason why... By the way, the economic ideology of capitalism is so successful. We talked about socialism and communism. Why is capitalism so effective? Because man labors best when he labors for himself. Because man works hardest when he perceives that there's something personally to gain, right? I'm not going to work hard just to let somebody else take it all. But I will work hard if I get it. Anyway, Solomon asks. Proverbs 16.26 Or he says, uh, he says this, excuse me. In, in Proverbs sixteen twenty six, he that laboreth laboreth for himself, for his mouth craveth of it. We labor for ourselves, and we do this because we have an insatiable appetite to have. But notice what Solomon continues to say, and he asks this in verse eight: For what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? Lines of wealth and prosperity are not drawn between wise men and foolish men, are they? There's plenty of foolish rich men and wise poor men. And even a poor man, Solomon says, who understands how the world works can achieve general contentment in this life. And Solomon is confused by this in in, in the evil disease phase of his life. That, look, I can look at a poor person and he can be content. 
Whereas I can look at a rich person and he cannot. We talked about this last week. Solomon lamenting the fact that the poor man can sleep well and the rich man can't sleep at all because he's troubled. Indeed, no man, whether wise or foolish, rich or poor, can satisfy, satisfy his desires on his own. But there is a solution. A principle which undergirds this quest for satisfaction. Verses 9 and 10. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. That which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. Solomon says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. May I, may I put it this way? Better is what you have in front of you than what you want. Better to be content with what you have than to always want something that you don't. Better to take what you have and say, I've got it, so let's enjoy it, than to say, I'm not going to enjoy anything because of what I don't have. The symptom of the evil disease is that our eyes are wandering in desire. We, we are so selfish that our eyes are wandering in desire at the expense of what we already have been given. But better still, Solomon says, for us to understand that things, whether it's that which we have or that which we don't, simply cannot satisfy. That's what he says here. The thing, uh, that which hath been is named already. The thing which has been is already named. That regardless of what we strive for, we're still only men. Better if we get the perspective that no matter what we want or, 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 or have, what we don't have, we're only men. And that there's one that's mightier than we are. That we're better... If we recognize that we have no capacity, no matter how hard we try to change God's design. And so far better, because he is mightier than we are, to stop contending with him that is mightier than him. Stop contending with the Lord and start aligning with the Lord. And that's the cure for this evil disease. Stop fighting God and start submitting Know that God is greater than all, and to contend against Him is to contend to our own harm. We continue in verses 11 and 12. Solomon says, Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? For who knoweth what is good for a man in this life? All the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow. For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? No matter how hard we try, mortal man has no capacity to overcome or ignore the design of God. There's a connection between a desire for earthly things and the dissatisfaction in those things when taken outside of the natural position that God has given them. And the more we strive against our Creator, the deeper we fall into the depths of this discontentment. Many things increase the vanity of this life. Many things contend to know what is good for men in this short life. A life which is, as verse 12 says, spent as a shadow. And that's what Solomon is considering in verses 11 and 12. 
If there is life after death, folks, if these days under the sun are simply the beginning of something much greater, then what if, just what if, we spent these days, which pass as a shadow, with full consideration of the life that is to come? This is what we're going to talk about in depth next week. The better way. And Solomon contends with this. That if living for the things of this life will not satisfy, then maybe we should try something different. Let's live for the life to come and see if that changes things. And what we'll find over the next several weeks is it does dramatically change things. In other words, may I put it this way? We talked earlier about those times when you're really struggling to do something and then you exclaim, there simply must be a better way. Well, let's go one step further. I mentioned already Albert Einstein's quote that insanity is doing the same thing over again and expecting a different result or something effectively like that. What we're trying to do when we attempt to prove that things can satisfy from generation to generation is we're simply going from generation to generation saying that the last generation didn't have enough. And our generation can finally make things happen if we have enough things. The last generation said, well, yeah, this generation has done a good job at decreasing poverty and education, but you just didn't do enough. And if we just had a little bit more, and so we strive for it. And then the next generation comes and says, well, yeah, that generation did really well too, but just not quite enough. If we could just do a little bit more. And, and if, if, if we could just boil it down, it's insanity. That we're trying to take the very things that have failed generation and generation and generation since the beginning of man. And we're still trying to make it work. I can still make it work. There must be a better way. We'll talk about that next week. Let's apply. Only a couple of points today. Point number one, a spiritual disease rests upon this land and perhaps upon this church. And this is, this is where we always want to boil it down. We, we can look outward, but we always need to bring it inward, right? Because looking outward and saying everybody else has a problem doesn't do us really any good. It's when we look inward and say, I have a problem that needs to be solved, that then by collectively solving all of our problems with spiritual solutions, then we can help others solve their problems, and that's what brings revival. A.W. Tozer once wrote this. The natural man is a sinner because and only because he challenges God's selfhood in relation to his own. In all else, he may, be willing, he may willingly accept the sovereignty of God. In his own life, he rejects it. For him, God's dominion ends where his begins. For him, self becomes capital S, self. And in this, he unconsciously imitates Lucifer, that fallen son of the morning who said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. Yet so subtle is self that scarcely anyone is conscience, conscious of his presence. Because man is born a rebel, he is unaware that he is one. His constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of it at all, appears to him perfectly normal. He is willing to share himself, sometimes even to sacrifice himself for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. No matter how far down the scale of social acceptance he may slide, he is still in his own eyes a king on a throne. And no one, not even God, can take that throne from him. Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being 
created to worship before the throne of God, sits on his throne of his own selfhood and from the elevated position declares, I am. A spiritual disease rests upon this land and perhaps in this church. It's interesting, a couple of weeks ago, my wife came across a website. She was looking at something in Georgia, probably uh, some place to take the kids. And she found this particular monument called the Georgia Guidestones. I don't know if you've ever heard of these. The Georgia Guidestones, erected March 22nd, 1980 by a group of anonymous people, an anonymous organization. It's a monument to the religious ideology of the New Age movement. Something that's been building. You can read Humanist Manifestos 1, 2, and 3 that were done over the early 1900s and find these things. It's made of pyramid blue granite so that it'll last forever. It's written in a Ten Commandments format. Ten Commandments for Living. Mirroring clearly the commandments of our Lord, His Ten Commandments. Only not mirroring them at all. The content of these Ten Commandments, written in eight primary languages, English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindi, Hebrew, Aramaic, Chinese, and Russian. The other languages represented on the stones are all languages of New Age occultism, Babylonian, Egyptian, Greek, Sanskrit. The stone is oriented to plot the rising and the setting of the sun. It's meant to teach uh, uh, physical lessons, physics and, and, and astronomy and such. Effectively, it's supposed to be when we all blow ourselves up. And humanity is trying to rebuild and relearn knowledge. This is supposed to be their new Ten Commandments for the new dawn. For the new age of humanity when we've all killed ourselves. So that humanity can be built on this new age thinking and not destroy themselves again. And really what it is, is it's a manifesto to Lucifer. The ten points are these. First, humanity maintain... Maintain humanity under 500 million people in a perpetual balance with nature. Number two, guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Number three, unite humanity with a living new language. Number four, rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Number five, protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Number six, let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world Court. Number seven, avoid petty laws and useless officials. Number eight, balance personal rights with social duties. Number nine, prize truth, beauty, love, seek harmony with the infinite. Uh, number ten, be not a cancer on the earth, leave room for nature, leave room for nature. As uh, you read those with me together, uh, you find that they are a wholesale rejection of God's design. A wholesale rejection of God. Now there are a few things in there that are obviously good. Justice is a good thing as long as you define it right. Love is a good thing as long as you define it right. Uh, And yet what we see here is a manifesto of of not just Lucifer, but of what what we will see come to pass with Antichrist. This is the pinnacle of humanity saying, if only we could get to this, then we'd finally find satisfaction. Finally find utopia. Do you know what they're saying? A population of the earth under 500 million. What they are saying in suggestions number one and two. Let me go back. What they're saying in suggestions number one and two is that 12 out of every 13 people on the earth today is a mistake and needs to be wiped out. Right? Seven billion people on this earth. 12 out of every 13 people effectively need to be removed from this earth. You want to know why Planned Parenthood, the fight over abortion is so strong? What, what, what Planned Parenthood 
is, is, is trying to do what's going on there with abortion and then as we get into euthanasia and eugenics, it's this idea of rejecting God's design to, to populate the earth. Notice that third one. Unite humanity with a living language. Undo what God did at Babel. That's what they're saying. God cursed the earth, or God God confused the languages because man, when he's united, rebels. Man says, we need to undo that. Fourth, suggests adding reason to faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, right? Five, six, and seven suggest centralized power over the whole earth. Man being one, exactly what Nimrod attempted to do with Babel. The final three, eight, nine, and ten, assert what is often called man's spark of divinity, that we are one with the divine, that we are our own gods, that we can become gods. What Friedrich Nietzsche called the Superman. It's exactly what Hitler was trying to do with his eugenics program. He was trying to create the master race, the Superman. The next step in human evolution, where we get rid of anybody that's weak and feeble. And by the way, according to Friedrich Nietzsche, the very top of that list is not the mentally handicapped or the physically handicapped. The very top of that weakness list is the born-again Christian. The most evil and worst person on the earth in this Superman theory is the born-again Christian. The anonymous people who constructed this monument constructed it as a rebellion against God, a granite monument to the God of self. Lucifer said one day, I will exalt myself above the heavens. I will be like the most high, the God of self. But you know it will never be so, will it? This utopia that they seek is impossible. It can never be so. It can never be so because the problem with the world is not the number of humans. It's not the faith of humans. It's not the structure of governments. The problem is not a communication problem. It's not a social problem. The problem is a sin problem. There's an evil disease that is among us, friends. And it's the disease of self. But let us, let us leave ideological zealotry and consider the lives of our dear neighbors, friends, and loved ones. Let's consider our own lives. Do you see the symptoms of the disease in which in the society in which we live? Do you see the symptoms of the disease every Black Friday? When people devote the days of their lives to saving a few bucks on impulse buys? And is it any wonder that it's competing with Thanksgiving? That the divine command to be thankful has been usurped by the evil disease of self. That's not an accident, folks. It's not a coincidence. You see the symptoms of the disease in commercials and billboards and credit card offers that allow people to perpetually transfer their debt from one card to another so that they continually buy and buy and buy even at the expense of their financial well-being because we're still looking for that golden ticket that will satisfy all of our desires, casting off the design of God to live with an eye of contentment to pursue with all of our might the God of self. You see the symptoms of the disease in the new fads, sexual fads today of 
transgenderism and trans everythingism, transracialism, trans this, trans that, casting off the design of God, saying I'll only be content if I, as a white person, can become a black person, or if I, as a man, can become a woman, then I'll find contentment in the God of self. It's it's the same evil disease, folks. It's manifesting itself in all sorts of ways. And some of it's socially acceptable and some of it is not. And by the way, some of it is socially acceptable in the church even, isn't it? While other is not. And there's certain things that we say, no, 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 you can't do that. And there's other things that we'll just turn a blind eye to. And it's all the same God. It's all the same evil disease manifesting itself in different symptoms. It's the disease, this evil disease of self. But as with all, we turn our Minds inward, most of all. Our hearts inward. Because we carry this disease of self in us as well, don't we? As believers, the power over this disease is broken. The mind of Christ, a mind of selfless humility, even unto death, has been placed into you and you can assume it, but it's going to take some perspective, some work. The question is not, can self be defeated in your lives? Because on the cross, Jesus defeated the disease. The question to our point then is this. Is it actively being defeated in your life? As we spoke of man's insatiable desire for things in order to satisfy, the question is, are you caught up in this evil disease? Are you convinced that something material or physical is what you need to be truly happy? If I only had that job, if I only had that money, if I only had that spouse, young people, if I only had that family, if I only had that income, if I only had a certain number of church members, pastor, huh? then we'd, men, we'd really be rolling here. And here's what happens when we try. We become dissatisfied. And if we're not careful, this dissatisfaction gets deeper and deeper and deeper till the day we say an untimely birth would have been better than my life. And now we're unhappy and we're depressed and we're sorrowful and we're anxious because we're living in the depths of the symptoms of this evil disease. And the tragedy is that the disease, the cure, was created 2,000 years ago. And is free to anyone who will take it. And live in it. What are some of the common things used to dull the craving? New stuff. Right? Buying new things. In our culture particularly. You get something new, you feel good for a little while. Then it gets old and you need something new again. Maybe just looking for new stuff. Shopping. Right? The constant, it's, it's, it's almost like a small little dose by just lusting after everything you can't have. What about constant amusements? If I can't dull the desire, the feeling, then I'll just forget. Play video games all day, watch movies all day, watch sports all day, use TV to distract me from life. To distract me from the ache. To check out from this world. Why are... Video games so popular today, especially the massively multiplayer online games, role-playing. Why? 
because what people, particularly young people, are not accomplishing in life, they feel like they can accomplish digitally. And so they achieve something, they earn achievements, right? And they feel like they've actually earned something when all they've done is sat on the couch for hours and hours and hours and hundreds and thousands of hours. Trading their life for a false sense of achievement and for a false sense of fulfillment. It's an evil disease, folks. And it's all around us. Drama. Have you noticed that there's people today, particularly in the, the millennials who have grown up on sitcoms? There's a large contingency of people today that feel like if something's not going wrong, they're not happy. And so they have to bring drama into their lives in order to be happy. If, if drama's not there, they have to create it. Gossip, clicks. And you say, why do they always have to, why is it always dramatic around them? Because they have to have drama. It's what fulfills them. It's what brings them some measure of satisfaction to self. Because the fingers have been pointed at them. The eyes have been turned to them. You see it on social media. You see it in real life. Certainly drugs and alcohol. Self-medicating. Filling your bodies with substances that can allow you to check out of reality so you don't have to face what is. You don't have to face the pain, the depression, the longing, the lack of satisfaction. Just forget it all. Relationships. Pursuing many shallow relationships, perhaps even sexual in nature, for the temporary satisfaction that fills the void. There are even Christian things that have been designed to serve self. Going incessantly to conference, from conference to conference to conference to concert to concert to concert. All Christian conferences and Christian concerts in an effort to give you a pick-me-up to get to the next one. As a matter of fact, that's what a lot of churches are today, right? You come and they say, we're going to do nothing but inspire you. So that you can leave inspired. Why? Because your life is so bad during the week that if you don't come Sunday and get your inspiration for the week, you just end up in despair. So don't say anything negative. Don't talk about sin. Uh, make, make sure that your music is really upbeat and lively so that people leave feeling like, well, I was a screw-up before and I'm not going to be a screw-up anymore. What's going on there? It's the symptoms of self, this evil disease that is binding people. And we're just looking for a little bit of a shot of adrenaline to get us through to the next shot of adrenaline. We can try to fill the void of satisfaction with busyness in the church. You, you keep yourself so busy so that you don't have to be distracted with all that God stuff, right? But we can still be serving self even in the church, can't we? And we as believers are not immune from any of these folks. The desire to skip from temporary satisfaction to temporary satisfaction, desperately trying to fill a void that otherwise is missing in our lives. But the thirst always comes back. The craving continues. And every time you feel those cravings, what you can know is that that evil disease is still there, wanting you to believe that the things of this life can give you satisfaction. But it's all smoke and mirrors. The cravings will continue 
because there's no lasting satisfaction found in people and things and activities. But the good news is there is a cure. The disease of self won't go away until your spirit has left your body, but the power of the disease of self can be removed from your daily life. Because, point number two and finally, man can find lasting satisfaction. The key to our understanding is verse 10 of our text. That which hath been is named already and is known that it is man, neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. The key is to understand that no temptation you face, no desire to fill the void within, uh, with the things of this life is anything new. It's always, it's been there before, it's going to be there still. Man is man, the evil disease is old, is as old as history itself, but the key is to remember that we cannot contend with the Almighty. And come out on top. Which means in order to find the success that we crave, we need to put God first and hold Him above all other things. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 and 6. Let your conversation be without covetousness. And be content with such things as ye have. For He hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Can we learn to be content? Can we learn to live in such a way that the things we are doing and the things we are buying and the things we are watching and the things that we are listening to are not a response to the craving of our heart to be satisfied or fulfilled, but rather everything that we buy and everywhere we go and everything that we watch and everything that we listen to would be an extension of our satisfaction with the life that God has given us? Do you see the difference? Do what you do and get what you get and live what you live as an extension of satisfaction, not to create satisfaction. Do you discern the difference between seeking satisfaction in the things of this world and having your satisfaction in God and so finding joy in the things of this world? Are you satisfied with your house, your cars, your things, your current state in God so that whether things change or not, you can be truly content? And then as things change and things get better or things get worse, you find that your joy doesn't change because it doesn't rest in the things you have or the things you want or the things you don't have, but in the God who is leading you through the changes. Does your heart echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, 14? I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. If you were to ask God to live the life of a poor, if you were asked by God, excuse me, to live the life of a poor man or woman with only God and his word as your true and constant companions, could you live wholly satisfied? Has the evil disease of self been conquered in your life or does self still find a priority in your heart? Solomon looked upon an evil disease in this passage, a man who had all that the world had to offer. Money and family and things and life. And in it he sought satisfaction, but there was none to be found. And he says it is an evil disease. Cured only by a change of perspective. Whereby we stop seeking to contend with the Almighty. And we start aligning with the Almighty. You can find lasting satisfaction. But I guarantee you it will not be in anything this world has to offer. It will be in loving God. Obeying God. And serving God with all your heart. Find this. 
and you will find satisfaction. And everything else will exist as a natural extension of God's goodness to you. And then you will rejoice in those things in a way that you could not before. Not for what they are, but for what they represent. Not because of the fact that they are things that you want, but because they represent the goodness of God upon your life. Your family will become not the source of your satisfaction, but a testimony of God's goodness. Your wealth will become not the source of your satisfaction, but a testimony of God's good gifts. Your entertainment will become not the source of your satisfaction, but a simple pleasure that reflects God's goodness to you. And in this perspective, all that we have becomes truly satisfying, not because of what it is, but because of who gave it to us. Can we live this way? We ought to. Where's the disease of self in your life? Is it, is it controlling you? Is it leading you to the symptoms of this disease, which is lack of satisfaction? If, if you found something, if the Holy Spirit has pinpointed something, would you root it out? Would you reorient your perspective today? Let's pray.